You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Readings out of Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many years, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of God. Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us to see Jesus tonight. Help us to know and trust him even more. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight's a torch night, so if you're a fourth or sixth grader and want to head out with the wards, feel free to do that. I like it in here. It's cool air blowing. Uh, 
I'm sorry that my voice doesn't sound so warm and dulcet as Mark's. I wish Mark could just like record the Bible for me and I could just listen to it as I drove. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved watching the news. Like every single night uh, at like five o'clock, my parents would turn on Channel 5 in Dallas and we would watch the local news and then the national news and then the local news again. Uh, growing up, I was, a, I was a Tom Brokaw guy myself. Uh, one, of the, one of the few things that I might love more than Tom Brokaw is Dana Carvey's impersonation of Tom Brokaw. Few of you, Gerald Ford died today. Uh, but uh, I've always loved the news. I've always loved politics. I've loved current events. But you guys, like, I can't do it anymore. Just confession. Like, watching about two minutes of the news is just almost too much for me these days. Like, whether it's local or national or global news, about 90 seconds is about all I can muster. Like, the world is just so broken, so uh, corrupt, so sad, that it makes it difficult for me to want to keep watching or want to keep reading. And I'm not suggesting that we ought to close ourselves off to the difficulty of the world and just like cover our ears and just tell ourselves and try to convince ourselves that the world is just a-okay or something, but the world is just filled with immeasurable suffering. And if our only interaction with the world was to watch the news, was to perhaps get on Facebook and see health updates or relational updates of friends and family, perhaps even just to observe your own suffering in this world, you might come to the conclusion that God is just not there. Or if he is there, he doesn't care, or he isn't powerful enough to do anything about this broken world. Well, the news and Facebook and our own lives, though, are not the end of the story. In fact, the beginning of the story, and hopefully after tonight, uh, the work in the story of Exodus 2 will begin to add more and more meaning to our lives, where perhaps against much of the visible evidence in this world that might suggest otherwise, God is actually there. God is uh, powerful to save. He sees he hears, he cares, and he remembers. So we'll divide this chapter into two halves based on two separate drawings of Moses. Not like pictures that Moses drew with a pencil, but like uh, ways in which he was pulled. We'll see Moses drawn out from the water and then drawn out from Egypt. So first of all, drawn out from the water. Last week we saw the Genesis story pick right up and move into Exodus 1, not only with Joseph's family from Genesis in Egypt, but that despite the best efforts of the world, despite the best efforts of Pharaoh to oppose and thwart the promises of God, God continues to multiply and bless his people, that what some intended for evil, God intends for good. Still, though, God's people are languishing. They are suffering under immense suffering. They're marginalized, they're diminished, they're enslaved, they suffer and they die. And yet, they still multiply, they become a large population, so much so that Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians begin to be afraid of them. Like, what might they become? What if they decide to revolt against us and stage a, a revolution against us? And so from last week, we saw Pharaoh command that every male child be thrown into the Nile. Doing this for several years would make a huge dent into the population of Israel. And 
yet still have enough that they might still be able to build their, the Egyptian cities, just maybe not kill them. But then in Exodus 2, we read that in verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The, the, the narrative of the story has been flying over many hundreds of years, and then it slows down and it zooms in on one family with seemingly an unnecessary comment of the son of one of Jacob that this man belongs to, the tribe of Israel that this man and woman belong to, the the tribe of Levi. Unnecessary in the present, perhaps, but not in the future, which we will see the family or tribe of Levi, which which will become the tribe of priests. More on that in a few months. But this lady has a baby, and just like likely the other Hebrew women, And when she had this baby, she must have been horrified to find out that this was a male baby. There's been an order to kill this baby. But then past her horror, she sees in verse 2 that this baby is a fine child. So she hid him. Now, other translations have this as not as fine, but as a beautiful child or a handsome child, which seems really weird, right? Like, if this baby hadn't been so Gerber baby cute, this mother wouldn't have wanted to preserve this baby's life. That surely wouldn't have been the case. Well, just as we saw in Genesis, we saw Genesis 1 themes from Exodus 1. There are Genesis 1 themes popping up here in Exodus 2. The literal word for fine or beautiful in this, describing this baby is good, which is the exact same word that God uses over and over and over to declare what he created in Genesis 1. Every time he creates something, it is good. And this is the kind of thing that this woman sees about her baby. This mother sees this baby and is reminded of God's care, of his intention for humanity in the world, and she just has to keep him. She can't destroy what God has created as good. But this baby starts getting bigger, and as parents of little ones know, a couple in the back right now, uh, the baby becomes too loud to keep hidden. So the mother acts in desperation. She acts in hope. She makes a basket and she hides him in the reeds. This is the ancient equivalent of like leaving a baby at the front door of a hospital or of a fire station. Put a baby in a conspicuous place where the baby is sure to be found in a place where she knew that others would come to the river, especially perhaps other women who might take pity and compassion on this baby. So we can probably put out of our minds like the super dramatic like intro to the Prince of Egypt, the animated uh, Moses story of like this basket like tumbling over waterfalls and like through snapping crocodiles and fighting hippos or something, right? She probably just put this baby right in the reeds where it would not move, but put the baby in a conspicuous place where it would be found. So nevertheless, it seems that there's an instance of great luck that not only the baby is found that morning, but is not only cared for, but is also found and cared for by Pharaoh's daughter himself. The irony that sets up the beginning of this baby's life is like drippingly thick. The place of death, the place of the Nile, where the babies were supposed to be put, is now the place of life. The family who orders the death of all the Hebrew sons now becomes the family which will care for this baby. The Hebrew birth mother becomes the baby's nursemaid and gets paid for that by the very one who has ordered this baby's death. It's amazing. And if we're paying attention to words and themes, the the story gets even thicker. 
The word for basket, the thing that the baby's mother puts this baby into, is only used one other time in the entirety of the rest of the Bible. The word is literally ark, where earlier in Genesis, water is a place of death for wider, a wider population, but God preserves a very small remnant. He brings salvation in the water and keeps his covenant promises to his people. This story also points us forward to another salvation of Moses through another body of water where there are reeds. We'll save that, or we'll save our reflection for how Paul grabs hold of that Red Sea uh, instance in the event of 1 Corinthians 10 and how he links all of this water stuff with baptism in the New Covenant. That's the good stuff. We'll save that for later. But all of this shows us that God is at work. Up until this point, God's been perhaps hanging around in the shadows but here he is becoming a hugely prominent character. In the day-to-day experiences of these Hebrew slaves, God might have seen or have been seen and felt as a non-existent character. Where is God in our suffering? Where is God in our pain, in our sickness, in the political violence and corruption that we experience, in injustice? Where is God in death? God is there, perhaps not acting in the ways that they wanted him to or when they wanted him to, but he is all the while acting in wisdom and in goodness. To paraphrase an old John Piper quote, there are about a billion things happening in the universe at any given second, and you are aware of like three of them. We are very, very small, and the universe is very, very big, and God is over them all. Ultimately, we don't have to come up with reasons or justification for why God allowed this kind of sufferings for so long. But maybe God knew that the idolatry in Canaan, the land in which Jacob's family was living, would have been so temptingly wicked that he forced Jacob's family into Egypt in the first place. Perhaps in comfort and Egyptian luxury, this family would have assimilated into Egyptian culture and then been lost to history forever not keeping any kind of distinctive of, as God's covenant people. So he separated them into slavery, that he might keep them, that he might preserve them, that he might multiply them. Who knows? Again, all of that doesn't do any good, though, for the generations and generations of slaves who don't have the same kind of perspective that we might have. In the same way that when someone experiences tragedy in the moment of their life, perhaps the best verse to try to comfort them with isn't Romans 8.28. That, you know, God, cheer up, sad person. God works together all things for the good of those who love him. This death, this job loss, this cancer, it's, it's for your good. That's true. But perhaps we won't be able to see the effects of that goodness, the effects of God's care and wisdom for many years, for many decades perhaps until centuries later after we are long gone. And yet, this is why we have to keep reminding ourselves of what is true and right before and during suffering, so that we don't forget in the darkness what we know to be true in the light. So we read, even memorize things like questions 27 and 28 from the Heidelberg Catechism. We remind ourselves that all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We can say that now in the light and let that sink and become more and more real that was something that we trust so that when suffering inevitably comes, we believe that to be true. 
It's not a coincidence that Jacob's family is in Egypt. It's not a coincidence that they are enslaved. It's not a coincidence that there is death and there is life and there is salvation. It is not a coincidence that Pharaoh's daughter happens to be down at the Nile that day, happens to take this baby out of the water, and happens to name him Moses, which means to draw out, that he is drawn out from the water. So Moses has his first exodus, his first exodus, or his first experience or exit of God's salvation, which now gets us first from drawn out of the water to now, secondly, drawn out from Egypt. While all of the movie versions put a lot of emphasis and a lot of time in Moses's like intervening years as like a prince, here we just it like just moves really quick. Verse ten has Pharaoh's daughter naming him Moses, and then it like fades to black, and then comes back many years later, and Moses is immediately thrown into the conflict. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Like, there's no, there's no lead up. There's no experience of him as, like, some uh, princely Egyptian. He's just thrown right in, and there's no commentary given here on this, on why he did this, or if he was even right or wrong. Moses, seemingly already aware that he's a Hebrew, he goes out to observe his own people, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of them. Maybe he feels some twinge of conscience of whether he should act or react or intervene and strike this guy, maybe even intentionally kill this guy. Maybe he just knows the reality that to kill an Egyptian will likely mean the end of his own life. But either way, he he looks this way and that, something that we have all experienced in our own life, undoubtedly, looking to see if anyone would see the thing that we are about to do, and he kills this guy. The next day, he goes out again, and this day, he sees not an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting, conflict between them, but he sees conflict between two of his own people, two Hebrews fighting with each other, and he tries to break them up. And in a moment of clear foreshadow for the rest of the Pentateuch, for the rest of this book of Exodus and for the next three books that follow it, these two dudes respond in verse 14. They say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Even later, when the answer will be very clearly to the nation of Israel, God, God made Moses a prince and a judge over them. They still won't listen. But then, in a moment that must have caused the blood to rush to Moses' face, a feeling of exposure and of heat in his face. One of the guys says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He knows that he's been found out. But maybe it's just like a rumor that's been going around his people. Maybe the rest of the Egyptian culture hasn't found out about it. Maybe it'll, they'll keep it quiet and it'll blow over. But then in verse 15, we find out that Pharaoh has heard about it and that he desires to kill Moses. So he gets to the land of Midian. He decides it's time to get out of Dodge or die. So he goes to Midian, and he sits down at a well, which locates him firmly within the stories of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, Isaac and Jacob, who met their wives at a well outside of the land as well. And the point of those stories, especially with the Isaac and Rebecca story of Genesis 24, is to clearly show us the providential and guiding hand of God in the lives of this family. But it also connects Moses with Joseph. 
It was the Midianites who Joseph's brothers first sold him to and the Midianites who brought Moses to Egypt. And now Moses leaves Egypt and finds rest and safety amongst the Midianites. So perhaps God hasn't actually forgot the promises that he's made to the family of Abraham after all. Perhaps the writer of Exodus is now giving us a little hint that God is about to keep his promises to this family. Moses protects and saves the seven daughters of the Midianite priest, Reuel, and their flocks at the well. The daughters, thinking that Moses is an Egyptian, maybe because he's like still at the well, he's still like wearing guy liner and walking like this or something. I don't know how they know that he's an Egyptian, but they tell, it was like scoffs. I thought that was funny. Uh, uh, they tell their father what happened. And then this father, this priest in Midianite, or this Midianite priest, he welcomes Moses into his household, and Moses marries one of his daughters, Zipporah. Now, what, by the way, just to clear up one bit of confusion, uh, the Midianite father is elsewhere called Jethro. We'll see that in the very first verse of chapter 3 next week. Scholars aren't altogether clear on this, but it's likely that Jethro is a title. Jethro literally means excellence, or his excellency. So it's probably like his name is Reuel, and his title is the excellent one, his excellence. Just like Ramses is a title of the king, but Ramses, or, or Pharaoh is a title of the Egyptian king, but maybe Ramses or other uh, guys with different names were called Pharaoh. Anyway, Moses and Zipporah, they have a son. They name him Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land because this name is in the past tense. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. It seems that now, finally, Moses realizes that Egypt is not his home. I joked about Guy Liner and like walking like this or something, but seriously, maybe there's some truth to that, right? Maybe Egypt had become so comfortably his home for 40 years that it didn't so easily come off of him. Maybe he did walk like an Egyptian. Maybe he did talk like an Egyptian and act like an Egyptian and react like an Egyptian and think like an Egyptian and worship like an Egyptian. It was only when Moses himself goes out into the wilderness that he realizes that he's an outcast, that he realizes that Egypt is not his home that Egypt is not his people. Before he could lead Israel out of Egypt and into the knowledge and right worship of God, Moses must do the same. Before he could lead Israel into an exodus, he needed an exodus of his own. And the wilderness is just the place to do it. The wilderness, the place where many had and would come to depend upon God for survival, to come and to meet and know him. It was the wilderness where Jacob saw the stairway to heaven. It's the wilderness where later Elijah will hear the, st- the small, still voice of God. It, the wilderness is where John the Baptist would later draw the people out to know God, to repent of their sins. It's the place where at the end of Exodus, God will have Israel make, or God will have, uh, make Israel into his own people. It's the place, the wilderness, where Jesus himself would repeat Israel's story of temptation, but where they failed, he would succeed where they would disobey in distrust of God and he would obey in delight of God. Moses' time in the wilderness initially must have been a time of humiliation, a time of really just disorientation. Where am I? What is going on? Discomfort. 
But he must have later understood it, surely, to be a time of refinement. Before we can have a Moses who stands before all of Israel in Exodus 14 and yell to the country, to the nation of Israel, with confidence, before he can say, fear not, stand firm, the Lord will fight for you. Surely that that man could not have said those things on this day. To become a man who would depend on the Lord to fight for him, he had to become a man that would learn to not fight the Egyptians, not try to fight his own way out, but to trust in the Lord who would fight Israel's way out for them. As the old saying goes, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. But I'm sure it wasn't every morning that Moses woke up with his head on a rock with sand in his robe with like a sheep slobbering in his ear or something thinking, I am sure glad to be out here where God is teaching me patience and contentment and greater trust in the Lord. I'm sure there were many mornings of wondering what the heck he was doing way out here in the desert, outside of the comfort of Egypt. And the easy application for us might be, where are the wildernesses in your life which God is growing you, where he is shaping you through? And while that's a good question to think through, I'm not sure that it's the best question for this text for us tonight. Why? Well, because it immediately assumes that you are Moses in this story. Perhaps a better question might be, how does this story show me or point me to the glories of Christ? And who am I more like in this story? Pharaoh's command of the male children to be murdered is oppressive and wicked. And yet God, the high king of heaven, is not sitting there, not perplexed at like this cosmic cosmic chess game, Pharaoh's made this really terrible move that he didn't see coming, and he's like, well, shoot, now what am I going to do? This is not the God of heaven. God doesn't immediately strike down Pharaoh for this evil, nor does he immediately just teleport Moses out of Egypt, nor does he immediately teleport Israel out of their slavery. He places Moses into the river of life that was meant to be his death. He preserves Moses' life, but he also does so in the midst of Pharaoh's own house. And Moses, now a prince, will leave all that is behind, that he might live with and amongst his people, growing in empathy, growing in compassion for their situation. So it is no stretch at all for us to see this story as a growing ripple that is gaining energy and speed so that we we open to the story of Jesus. We think to ourselves, wait a minute, I know this story. Here is another king making oppressive edicts of commanding the murder of male babies, of God not teleporting people out of oppressive governments, nor of God striking down wicked ones who are in power, of Jesus himself telling his disciples who wanted to fight their way out of Rome's oppression. Don't you know that if I asked my father, he would send more than 12 legions of angels? Instead, it was Jesus, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we see this Jesus story, we're like, hey, I've seen this. I've seen this character 
act in this way before. Jesus, who would grow in empathy and compassion for his people as he lived among them, as he lived for them, to lead them out. But we are not the Moses figure in this story, wondering how God might use us in just extraordinary ways if we could just learn the lessons that he wants to teach us. We are more like these two Hebrew slaves. Wondering who made you, Jesus, a prince and a judge over me. I would rather live without your authority over me. I would rather live even without your compassion over me. Slavery sure does stink, but it's seemingly easier than bending my will. Responding in humility. It sure seems easier than to even cross the line and identify fully with you. And so it's been with humanity ever since God has created us, rejecting our king and maker in the Garden of Eden, rejecting our king and maker at the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet this King Jesus in the wilderness of his death is brought to new life that he might finally, for the first time in the history of humanity, bring a newness of life and spirit, something that humanity has never yet experienced. And this is the life that Jesus is offering tonight. Forgiveness of sin, a cleansing of conscience that Moses could never bring, freedom from slavery, unity with each other, unity with himself. And if you would respond in faith and humility and cross the line to say, yep, I don't don't understand all of this yet, but I want to be with Jesus. If, if If this is you, if this is something that you have never thought through yet or have been thinking about before, perhaps even over the last many months, perhaps even just past the past 30 minutes. Would you talk with one of us tonight, maybe over a slice of pizza after we finish here, to say, what does it mean? What would it mean to cross the line, to say, I have been a person who doesn't want God as a prince or judge over me? but I see him as good, as one who is able to forgive sins. I don't understand all of it yet, but what would it look like for me to identify with Christ? And yet, this is a long story. And God, through Moses, hasn't delivered his people yet. Chapter 2 gives us a concluding, kind of like a, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Verse 23, throwing us back to Egypt, away from Midian, where Moses still is. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. If there was any doubt before that God was the main character of this story, now he really moves to the forefront. And here is where we can begin to make some positive application for ourselves in our own lives. Even though God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows, that doesn't always mean immediate comfort, does it? Romans 8.28 of God working all things together for the good of those who love him isn't a promise of immediate freedom from any pain or suffering. 
The promise of, eight, of Romans 8.28 is a promise of ultimate freedom through pain and suffering. And the good of Romans 8.28, of God working all things together for the good of those who love him, isn't that God will somehow get you a million dollars if a tornado destroys your house or something. Yeah, I know that was really bad, but there's something better on the other side. Or even if there's someone better out there, if a boyfriend or girlfriend dumps you, or even a husband or wife leaves you. It was, it's, for, it's for your good, because there's somebody better out there. There may not be. I don't know. The good in Romans 8.28 becomes clear as you keep reading to find out that God works all things together for those who love him. The good becomes of doing nothing less than making you like Jesus. To hope like he hopes, to love like he loves, to delight in God when you have nothing else. And so for us, for you, for many of the conversations that I've had with you over the past week or month of real difficulty in your marriage, of frustration in what seems to be like a meaningless job, of a lost job and real doubt over whether you're going to be able to pay the bills this month, of your own sickness, of chronic pain, of the sickness or death of a close friend or a loved one, when just turning on the news for 90 seconds and just it brings waves of doubt and of sadness for the brokenness of this world, God hears, God sees, and God knows. In days of peace and days of rest, in times of loss, and loneliness, though rich or poor, your word is true, that all my ways are known to you. I'm glad that that song is like peppy and upbeat, because it is a peppy and upbeat reality, that all of our ways are known to God. But perhaps you haven't really thought through the sadness of that first stanza that I just read, or the next one, that no trial has come beyond your hand, no step I walk beyond your plan. The path is dark, Outside of my view, still all my ways are known to you. And yet, oh, what peace that I have found, wherever I may be, for all my ways are known to you. Hallelujah. They are known to you. He is not sitting behind the chessboard wondering what his next move will be because the cancer came. All of our ways are known to him. For those who are in covenant with God, as Israel lived in covenant with God through the promises that he made them through Abraham, he hears your prayers. He remembers his covenant to you to not only save you, but neither leave you nor forsake you. He sees your suffering and he knows your pain. And yet it's through difficulty and weakness that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, that he might actually produce in us the character of Christ which is something far greater and far more eternal than just getting our wishes granted. Even when those, are, those wishes can be good and godly desires. Your joy and your contentment in him is far more fixed and far more eternal than our temporary satisfaction in a wealthy life and a healthy life. All the things that can just tempt us to think that joy is found in stuff 
instead of in him. So let's together keep reminding ourselves of his promises. Let's keep urging one another and responding in faith to those promises. Most of all, the promises that he has saved us, that he loves us, that he has given us all that we need for life and for godliness, that he has given us a life that will not always be a life lived in wickedness and in sadness and in weakness, that one day we will together feast in the house of Zion, the place of God's presence forever, that we will feast and weep no more, no more. This is our hope. It is the hope that we look forward to as we continue on in this book of a greater exodus from our sin and from this world. Let's pray. O Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. Forgive us the countless ways in which we have failed you, the countless ways even today when we have responded to you like these Hebrew men, when through our consciences you speak to us, when through your word or through your people we hear of what you want from us and we respond in pride, we respond in defiance, we respond in anger. Lord, we are sorry. And yet we respond in confident hope in the one who has lived and died for us. Lord Jesus, all we have is our hope and our confidence in you. You are all we have. You are all that we need. Father, in our weakness, in our sin, in our suffering, in our pain, in our loneliness, in our doubt, Lord, make us more like Christ. Keep shaping us, keep forming us into a people who live for each other's good, into a people who love the world around us just supernaturally well and into a people who loves and worships you first in our heart. For your own glory, for our own joy and peace, and the comforting and the loving and the powerful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.